Amen. Amen. While we're making a transition up here, I'd uh, like you to join me to prepare our hearts for what God's about to say through me and join me in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are here among us. We thank you for our great worship team and those that are volunteering to serve you this morning, Lord. Father, I thank you as we already prayed for what you're doing in the lives of our youth and how you're working in their hearts and lives. And just ask that you would continue to help us as the church body to encourage them. They are not the church of the next generation. They're the church of now. And we know that our schools need your good news. Their friends need your good news. And Lord, just use us to mentor them, to grow with them, to encourage them. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we failed you this week, the ways we've sinned against you. In the words of the psalmist, we pray that you would have mercy on us. According to your steadfast love and your abundant mercy, I ask that you would blot out our transgressions. That you would wash us thoroughly and cleanse us from sin. Wash us and we'll be whiter than snow, Lord. Creating us a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within us. Don't cast us away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from us, Lord. We just ask that you now would forgive us, renew us, restore unto us the joy of your salvation and uphold us with a willing spirit. Lord, I pray that for all of us, I also pray, Lord, that as I'm about to share what you've put on my heart, that you would speak through me. Don't let me say anything that would take away from your word, from this position that I stand. I need you more than ever. Lord, give us hearts to hear, ears that are open. Give us hands and feet that are able to walk out what you call us to do today. Lord, we pray for our nation. We pray for the leaders of our nation. We pray for our first responders who are on the front lines of atrocities that no one wants to see. Pray for the men and women abroad that keep us safe, serving in our armed forces. Lord, we pray for our school teachers and those around that are in our schools and our educators. We pray for them as we look toward the beginning of a new school year. Lord, we pray, we ask that you would put your hand of protection around the schools in this area. That by your power, that they would just be safe from the darkness of this world. We claim them in Jesus' name. Father, for our church, I would just ask that as I've prayed that you would just stir up a movement of your Holy Spirit, that for those of us that have walked with you a long time, that you would renew our hunger for you. That it would be on, that you're, you would just make us on fire for you. For those of us that don't yet know you, Lord, I would just ask that by their being here this morning, that they would find it unmistakable that Jesus is alive and he lives in us. We go to your word now, Lord. Bless this time and these brief moments we share. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, if you haven't been here, we're actually in a series for this summer called God Never Said That, God Never Said That, and What the Bible Really Does. And so we've been discussing, you know, kind of hot topic verses or, or hot topic thoughts or, and things like that, or maybe just Christian phrases that maybe you've heard, and, and maybe they've been a little twisted, maybe they have been, haven't been applied appropriately. So we've talked about a lot of fun of them, a lot of them as we've been going through these past weeks. Today's one that you're all going to be excited that you showed up for. That's sarcasm from your pastor, but it's, 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 this is such an important message, um, and so we're going to jump right in. This, who's ever said this or heard this before? Money is the root of all evil. Money's the root of all evil, right? I came across this uh, this week. This is actually uh, posted at a cash, cash, cash register at a restaurant, um, and I thought this was quite funny. Money is the root of all evil. Cleanse yourself here. Huh. I mean, that's a great way to get a tip, is it not? Right? This is, but this is kind of a common phrase. Who has said this or heard? Money is a root of all evil. You know, put your hands up. I hope a lot of us have. Right? Did God never say that? What, is, what does the Bible really mean? Well, this this verse is actually comes from the Bible. It's in the uh, the letter to, from Paul to uh, Timothy, First Timothy. If you want to turn there, if you have your scripture with you this morning, First Timothy chapter six. So all the way in the back of that, First Timothy chapter six, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he writes this in First Timothy chapter six, verse ten: For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's what Paul writes. He writes, the love of money, that's a key part, right? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. It's the love of money. It's this problem with it. So we've, as we've been looking at this, we, we don't, is money itself evil? Like, should you take your wallet, should I take all the money out of my wallet and burn it, right? And if I, if I make a lot of money and I'm, I'm successful, does that mean I'm an evil person? Is that really what it means? No, it doesn't. God never meant that. And sometimes it's used that way. But the, under, the understanding is completely inaccurate. So we've been talking about how to interpret things throughout these past weeks. And just to run through this quickly, especially for those that haven't been here, when, when we interpret a passage, when we want to understand what God's word says, first of all, we have to understand the context. Wh- where was it written? Who was it written to? What's going on in the context? Who was the writer? Who was the recipient, right? So today we know that it's Paul. The apostle Paul wrote a third of the New Testament, writing to a protege, his protege, Timothy, a young man that he raised up in the faith and then he sent to pastor a church in Ephesus. The book of Ephesians was written to that church specifically, but that's what this letter is, is a letter from a, a mentor to a young pastor, helping him work through some of the issues that are going on in the church in Ephesus. Understand the context. Interpret scriptures with other scriptures. This is key. One of the solas, five solas in, in the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, scripture alone, tells us that I believe that it's possible, I really do, I believe that it's possible, that if you read a passage and you don't understand it, that God has other passages within scripture that gives us a clearer interpretation. And yes, of course, commentaries are great. And of course, Bible, study Bibles are great. I like them. I have a lot of them. But we know that we can actually interpret scripture with other scriptures. God is very consistent. He's very clear. He doesn't want this to be a mystery to us. Scripture with other scriptures. And finally, apply what you learn. 
Apply what you learn. It kind of doesn't make any sense to interpret a scripture and try to understand a scripture and then not apply it to our lives. I've, I've said before, you know, sometimes the most common phrase uttered on a Sunday morning in church is, hmm. You know, you get me? Hmm. Well, hmm doesn't change lives, right? We have to apply what we learn. God wants to really reach inside of us and figure out how does his Holy Spirit can transform us. So what is the context? They said, again, Timothy. Timothy understand, Timothy's receiving this letter from Paul, and here's what's going on in Ephesus. We need to understand this. They understand the context. He's combating false teachers. So if you, look at, if you have your scriptures open, 1 Timothy 6, 3, it talk, Paul's writing about that. He's combating false teachers. These teachers are teaching people, specifically the poor, but they're teaching all of the people in Ephesus that godliness is a means to financial gain. That's what's going on. And we don't have that today, do we? There's never any pastors or preachers that say, you know, hey, if you follow Jesus, you're going to make you rich. It's gonna bless, he's going to bless you, right? Of course we do. I don't know if it makes me happy or makes me cry that this was the problem all the way back then, and it still sometimes is a problem today. But that's, that's the truth. They were saying that if godliness, pursuing God, becoming a Christian is a key to financial gain. That's one of the things they were saying. And Paul's writing them, and in, in, in verses 6 to 8, Paul's saying, no, listen, Godliness comes from being content with what God has given you. God will provide everything you need. Paul knows about this. In another verse, in another, actually another, God never said that verse in Philippians 4. Paul's writing from a jail, and he says in Philippians 4.11, he says, I know what it's like to have a lot, and I know what it's like to have little. And yet I figured out the joy that is contentment in both. I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. He says, I understand this, but contentment comes from being content with what God's given you. That's where godliness comes. And so unlike our Western culture, the place where we all live, the place where we've all, most of us have been born, most of us understand life, Paul's saying that being content in this life doesn't come from amassing wealth. It comes from knowing God. It comes from pursuing him. So knowing that, do you think 1 Timothy 6.10 is actually talking about money being the problem? No, of course not. You know what the problem Paul's trying to address? Greed. He's trying to address greed. Now what's greed? There's a lot of definitions I could use, but my favorite definition is from Pastor Andy Stanley, and if I'm going to steal it, I'm going to steal it right. Give him credit, but also give him a hat tip. Pastor Andy Stanley, who says this, greed is the assumption that it's all for my consumption. It's the assumption that it's all for my consumption. It's, the, it's living with the assumption that every single thing I can get, my goal in life is to get more and more and more. And no matter what I get, how I, no matter what my checking account looks like, my savings account, my stocks, bonds, my IRA, all of it, any of the mass, the, the wealth that I can amass, any of the things that I can get, all of, is it, all of it is for me. And the way that I get happy, the way that I feel secure, the way that I feel at peace is I get more and more and more. And I just assume, I'm taught that if I consume, that I'm going to have inner peace, that I'm actually going to be thankful when, at the end of the day. I'm going to finally get there, right? And it drives us. It's the assumption that it's all for our consumption. And so Paul is saying, no, we don't do that. And then he addresses, not only is the false teaching wrong, but as we go through chapter 6 to verse 17, Paul shifts and actually tells Timothy how to address the rich people in the church. 
the rich people in the church. So that's where we're going to continue. Paul says this, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. Charge them not to be puffed up. Charge them not to, to, to be, uh, be overwhelmed with riches. And so we can read this verse and you could sit here this morning and say, well, this automatically doesn't apply to me because I'm not rich, right? I'm gonna check out the rest of the day. I'm gonna think about football next week and I'm gonna worry about my grocery list, right? We could do that. But do you realize that most of us, if not all of us in this sanctuary right now are rich, Do you know that 25% of the world lives on $2 a day? 25% of the world lives on $2 a day. Do you know that the world average income for a year in American dollars is $18,000 a year? And the average in the United States, which is $48,000 a year per person, that's the average income in the United States, puts all of us who make that or more in the top 1% globally. As for the rich in this present age, so maybe just maybe it does mean something to us. So maybe we should listen to what he's saying. He goes on, he says, don't be haughty, nor set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Because riches, wealth is not certain. The things of this world are passing away. Yes, of course, but let's look at this. Set their hopes See, what Paul wants to address as he's addressing people's heart when it comes to money, when it comes to greed, is this reality that once I explain it to you, you all will understand what I mean, that our hope can slowly migrate toward our wealth. There's something that can happen inside of us where as we get more or as we have more, we can migrate our hope away from God, away from trusting him, and actually have more trust in how much money we have in checking and savings how much trust we have in our retirement. Now, like I'm not saying, Paul's not saying money's evil, but he is saying you gotta watch that your hope doesn't migrate toward your finances. You know how you can figure out if this is true for you? It's like, think about this. What would scare you more today? If you went home from church today and you found out that every single place that you have money saved is, has disappeared, gone completely, zero checking, zero savings, zero retirement, it's all gone. Would that scare you more or would it scare you to go home and find out that God doesn't really exist and that all of this isn't real? Because I'll tell you, what would scare you more may tell you where your hope is. Don't set your hopes, don't let your hopes migrate towards wealth, but on God. Put your hope in him who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. I love that the NASB, which is another translation, actually uses the words, don't fix your hopes on wealth, but fix your hopes on God. The Greek could actually be translated, don't become fixated with wealth, become fixated on God. That's a secret that you have to have as a rich person when it comes to wealth. You don't have, don't, don't be fixated on your wealth. Don't be fixated on money. But it's easy to do, is it not? I'll tell you what, it's easy for me to do, especially when the bills that come in aren't as much as the checking ledger, right? No one's ever been there besides me, I guess. So be fixated. He says, don't be fixated on this. Fixate on God who richly provides us with everything. Yes, guess what? The word is everything there. Provides us with everything to enjoy. 
They are to do good and to be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. In other words, be fixated on God, not your wealth, and live a generous life. Generous in good works, generous with your money. That's what Paul wants you to do if you're rich. When you don't live your life and your life doesn't become revolved around money, when greed, when the assumption that it's all for your consumption doesn't, doesn't make, your, make your, uh, your life or order your life after that, after the pursuit of getting more and more, when you don't do that, when your hope isn't migrating from how much do I have to instead putting your trust in God to provide you everything you need, when you get to this place, Paul says something amazing in verse 19. When you store up the treasure, don't store up treasure for yourself as a good foundation for the future, that you may take a hold of that which is truly life. Paul's, we have to really catch this. Just, just don't let us, you know, don't breeze over this. What Paul is saying is that when you don't live by the assumption that it's all for your consumption, when you don't live that money is the thing that's going to make you feel secure, where it's going to be the source of everything that you need, when you don't live this way, but instead you live a way where you're fixated on God, not only are you going to store up treasures in heaven that cannot be destroyed, but you're going to do something else. You're going to experience that which is truly life. You're going to grab a hold of that which is truly life. Now let's look at the inverse. That means that if you are fixated on wealth, that means if you assume that everything you consume is for you. That, is mean, that means if your hope is fixated on that, if you've migrated completely over to a place where your money is where your hope is, you're going to miss out on what life's really all about. That's what it says. Black and white right in front of us, or yellow if, if you're me. That which is truly life, if you're rich. And it... Six, uh, 1 Timothy 6.10 says this, that if you don't do this, but instead you love money, you're actually piercing yourself. You're hurting yourself. This isn't a rebuke. This is telling you how to really live. You're challenging your own faith. Now, maybe you wouldn't consider yourself rich. Maybe you wouldn't consider yourself greedy. But allow me to convince you this morning. This is what I've learned, that most people that are rich or greedy fall into one of two categories, either savers or spenders. Or let's be a little bit more negative about it, hoarders and consumers. Some of us are hoarders, some of us are consumers. And you know what's awesome? <laughs> God has a sense of humor because we usually marry each other. Now, they'll be elbowing each other or pointing out, okay, keep it to yourself, but we do. We usually marry each other. Now, let's talk about the hoarders or the savers first. This is going to blow you away. Just in case you've never met one of these people, let me explain to you what happens with people that are hoarders, that are rich people. Um, they have garages. You know what a garage is, everybody with me? That you can't park in. They do. They have garages you can't park in. And it gets better. They have closets so full of clothes, yet nothing to wear. I mean, it's amazing. You can't, I'm sure some of you probably don't believe these people exist, but they do. They, they have storage facilities to store the things that they have that don't fit in the house that they have. Right? They're the kings and queens of, I'm going to keep this just in case. These are hoarders. 
Now let's talk about the savers, just so it's, it's an e- even thing. If you've never met anybody who's a saver, or maybe a consumer, here's the thing. The consumer is the king or queen of trading up. The king or queen of trading up. This is crazy, and I, I, you've, maybe you've never met anybody like this. They'll walk into their kitchen, and they'll have a perfectly good countertop and perfectly good cabinets, and yet want to rip them all out and replace them. They will. And it's another thing they do. They take a perfectly functioning paid-off vehicle, and they'll drive it into, this is going to blow you away, and drive it into an auto store, and they'll trade in that perfectly running vehicle and give money to get another perfectly running vehicle. They, I mean, that's what they do. I, I've never met anybody, but this, but this is what they do. Um, here's one thing that's crazy, especially for the younger generation. Consumers, spenders, they will stand in line texting their friends on their iPhone while waiting to buy another one. This is what consumers and spenders do. This is what people who live may be driven by the assumption it's all for my consumption do. So what else does scripture tell us about how to fight against greed, how to move forward? These are some truths that I've found in scripture as I was preparing. The first is this, if you love money, you'll never have enough. If your hope is migrated towards money, you'll never have enough. Look what Ecclesiastes 5.10 says. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. Because it's never going to give you satisfaction. If your hope's migrated to that, you're never going to get to the place where you feel secure. Another thing scripture says is wealth is fleeting. Not only did Timothy say that in his verse, but Jesus said that. When Jesus was preaching probably his, famous sermon, his most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, don't store up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your, store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. Wealth is fleeting. It can't, be, it can't come with you and you can have it and lose it in a day. And if your hope and if your trust and if your, and, and your peace is found in the ledger of your checking account, it could be taken away in a minute. And if that is the place where you set your hope, you're going to live a life full of anxiety. You're going to live a life full of greed. You're going to full, live a life where you're never satisfied. Another thing scripture tells us very clearly is God knows what you need. God knows what you need. It's not necessarily where uh, the passage I'm about to read you is, but I think it's interesting that when we pray, when Jesus taught us how to pray in Matthew, he tells us that as we pray, we say, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, kingdom come, they will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. It should teach us something that Jesus told us our dependence on God should be daily. You know what happens as we live? We as Americans believe that our dependence depends on how much we have for tomorrow. And then our hope begins to migrate. God knows what you need. He will give you your daily bread. Jesus says, don't worry about these things saying, what will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? This This is a pretty tough verse here in 32. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. So then seek first 
the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. Uh, just, just so we're all on the same page, this is Jesus. This is a Dan. This is Jesus. God knows what you need. He'll give you everything that you need. And finally, we aren't called to be rich. We're called to be rich toward God. Jesus models in a parable, which we're about to read, what the assumption that it's all for my conception looks like. In Luke chapter 12, he says this, then he spoke a parable to them, that's Jesus saying, the ground of a rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself saying, what shall I do since I have no more room to store my crops? Which one is he? A hoarder, right? So I know what I'll do. Instead of getting a storage unit, I'm, I'm gonna do this. I will pull down my barns and build bigger ones. I'll trade up. I'm going to be a spender. I'm going to build bigger ones so that I will be able to store my crops and goods. And I will say to my soul, where is his hope migrated? I'll say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. Where's he, where's he gone in this assumption that it's all for his consumption? And Jesus says, but God said to him, fool. This night your soul will be required of you. Then those, then the, whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Scripture's completely consistent, isn't it? Here we have a guy who did this. And God says you're a fool. You've put your hope in that which is fleeting. You've assumed that everything I've blessed you with is for you. And yet, when you die, when your soul is taken with you, away from you, you have nothing to show for in eternity. You weren't rich toward me. You didn't live a life of generosity. You lived a life to get rather than a life to give. Timothy would say, or Paul would say to Timothy, that that challenges your faith when you live that way. That you pierce yourself when you live that way. That having that in your heart is the root of all kinds of evil. The assumption that it's all for your consumption. So maybe, you know, all jokes aside, maybe this is something you struggle with. Maybe this is something, and now your question to me is, okay, now, now what? This is the place where we apply what we learn. What do we do? I have three things if, if you want to take a step forward in being rich toward God. If you want to take a step toward living a life of genera- generosity. If you want to put guardrails around your finances so your hope does not migrate to your wealth and it stays fixated on God. Three simple things that I would challenge you to maybe think about this week. The first one is to clear out. To clear out. That means if you're a hoarder, pare down and give some of it away. I was very encouraged this week when I put out a request for, some, for somebody that was in need that I had people that said, you know what, we got a couch, we got a bed, we got things that we could give away because we have extra. You know, it's this mindset that we have, this mindset that God wants us to have, that maybe the things that you have that are extra aren't given to you just in case. Maybe they're given to you so that you can bless someone else who has nothing. In fact, it's their just-in-case moment right now. 
And we all have extra things. We've got extra things in our closets. We've got extra things in our garages. We've got extra things in our attics. Maybe just for you, and I don't know, the Holy Spirit is going to tell you. It's not up to me. Maybe for you, this is the challenge this week, to clear out, to give some of that away. Wouldn't it be great if we had a church where people that had extra could put out something to, to the church and just say, hey, I have this. I don't need it. Does anyone else need it? We don't need the government to tell us to do that. The Holy Spirit can tell us to do that. We could share with one another. Acts 2 tells us that it, the early church, when it was first birthed in the Holy Spirit, uh, led 3,000 people to Christ that day through, through Peter's preaching, that to any who had need, there was no problem. Everybody had everything they need. What would it look like if we were a church that modeled that, right? By clearing out. Maybe you could post a photo of all your junk on our Facebook page this week and say, I'm clearing out. I'm clearing out, right? To encourage us to do this. Maybe for you it's to pay out, to pay out. Some of you, you have lived your life up to this point with the assumption that it's all for your consumption. In fact, if I was to ask you, what's the percentage of your income you're living off right now? You would tell me 110, which is impossible. Oh, no, 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 not it's not. Not in the world of loans and, gift and, and, and credit cards, Right? And so for some of you, the idea to be rich toward God, the idea to be generous can't even be a reality in your life because you are overloaded because of living with the assumption it's all for your consumption. You're overloaded with debt. And you're a slave to money. You don't love it. You may hate it, but you're a slave to it. And you can't live in the freedom that God wants to give us to be rich toward him, to be generous, right? Listen, if that's you this morning, don't feel guilty. Let me tell you something. When, when I was in my 20s and my wife and I, Jessica, just got married, within two years of getting married, we had a house, we had two cars that we had loans on, we had all our college loans, we had a house of furniture that we had to get a loan out through, the, through Wolf Furniture to be able to actually furnish our house, right? We had all of these things, things that took my parents decades to have I had in two years, because I finally had money. But guess what? We had to work overtime to pay for it all. You know how much we enjoyed any of it? Zero. So I'm not standing up here being all preacher-like, shaking my finger, telling you you have to pay out. I know what it's like, and I understand what it feels like to live a life where the assumption of it, that it's all for my consumption has overwhelmed me. Listen, I'll tell you as the pastor of this church, if that's you, come see me. I would love, our deacons would love, our elders would love, the people in this church would love to walk with you and help you take steps toward freedom so that you could live a life of, generous, of generosity, so that you could experience that which is truly life. And you don't have to be ashamed about it. Our, our Savior, Jesus Christ, says, you can come to me broken. You can come to me messed up. You can come to me with your finances completely shattered. Because it doesn't matter how you come to me. The good news of Jesus Christ is not only am I going to save your soul, but I'm not going to keep you there. In fact, I'm going to help you get better. And we're going to be a church that even in the area of money, if you're in a place where you cannot live out the biblical perspective, we'll help walk with you without shame, without condemnation. We'll help you walk through the process to where you'll be experiencing financial freedom. If there's more than just one or two of you, we'll, we'll get Dave Ramsey's study and we'll walk through that. 
And we'll walk through how to order your finances because if it's important for you to be able to pay out and experience freedom. I love you enough that we'll put time and effort into that. You with me? But some of you need that. Get, get rid of the shame. Don't feel ashamed about it. Let's take a step today to walk toward freedom. And finally, some of you need to give out. I just needed an out, so here we are. Give out of your, of your wealth. Give out of your abundance. To have that mindset that maybe, just maybe, God's blessing on me wasn't for me. It was for someone else, right? Some of you need to do that. God's given us a way to do that. One of the primary ways the scripture talks about is this thing called a tithe. And immediately, as soon as I said that, everybody stopped listening. It's this thing called a tithe. It's consistent. It's in Leviticus. It's in, it's in Malachi. It's in the Gospels. It's in Acts. This idea that God says, I'm going to bless you, but a portion of what I bless you with, you give to me. And one of the primary ways that God set up to do that is to give to the local church where you invest your time and your life into so that we can do God's work. And that's part of what we do as a, as a community. And, some, and I know, listen, nobody likes to hear the pastor talk about money. All, all, the church, all the church wants is my money. No, listen, as your pastor, listen to me. No, I don't need your money. I don't want your money just so that I can have more wealth. I have my hope set clearly on God alone. He's gonna take care of us. This is his mission that we're trying to fulfill at this church. He's gonna make sure it happens with you or without you. My life is fully sold out for him and I will have a roof over my head and food on my table with or without you. I'm not preaching about tithing so that, because I want your money. I'm preaching about tithing because I'm supposed to shepherd your soul and Jesus wants your soul. Jesus wants all of you. He wants every part of you. And as your pastor, I love you enough to say that if you're not giving a portion back to him, then you're living possibly in a migration of your hope towards your wealth and you're harming yourself. You're, li- you're, move- you're missing out on the freedom that God has for you to experience that which is truly life. And if you've never tithed before, I believe the biblical, the bi- biblical example is 10%. But it's really hard, especially if somebody would have came to me a few years ago when Jessica and I were buried in debt and said, now you have to take 10% of your income and give it to me. I was like, I don't even have 10% to give to myself, right? And it would be hard. I believe in percentage giving. Go home today. Pray. Talk to your spouse. God, what percentage of my wealth do you want me to give to the church? Maybe it's 1%. Maybe it's 2%. That's okay. And everybody in the, in the congregation is like, what's wrong with this guy? It's cra- he's crazy. No, guess what? I didn't become the way I am in my faith overnight in many, many areas of my walk with Christ. I don't expect you to be able to become in the biblical standard or even beyond if that's what God wants you to do overnight. But maybe he wants you to take a step of faith to say, you know what, I'm going to give 2% of my income this year. I'm going to take a step, because I believe the Holy Spirit's going to work in your heart, in your life, and you're going to do what he wants you to do faithfully. You'll get to the place where God wants you to be. Tithing's a great example. Generosity. This is what we have to live toward. This is what God calls us to. Is money the root of all evil? No, it's not. I want us to be successful. If you have a business, I want you to be successful in your business. 
If you're a salesperson, I want you to be successful as a salesperson. Whatever you're doing, I hope that you do it, as it says in Colossians, for God. And that he blesses you and he blesses all of, all of your life. Not only that, not only in your family and not only in your health, but in your finances. I want that for each and every one of you. But what I don't want is that your hope migrates towards your wealth as where you find your peace. What I don't want is you to live in this consumer-minded assumption that everything that you have is for your consumption. Why? Because I love you guys. Why? Because some have wandered away from the faith when they've gotten that place. Why? Because when people do that, they pierce themselves with many pangs. Why? Because God says if we live with our wealth his way, where we live generously, where we live to give, not to get, that we will experience that which is truly life. And why wouldn't I want you to experience all that life has to offer? So we have to fight against this assumption that it's all for our consumption. We have to, and we have to embrace a lifestyle of generosity. Because what would it look like if people were to say, instead of all the many things they say about Christians, if they were to say, you know, those Jesus followers at Palmyra Grace are the most generous people we've ever met. What would that do in our community? What would that do in your heart, in your life? Maybe these are your steps this week. Clear out, pay up, give out. I'll be praying for you. Maybe you're good in all of this and you don't need this. Maybe it's for you to share with somebody else. But God wants us to grow in this area as well as every other area. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word. And I thank you for your people gathered here. Lord, I imagine that there's many times throughout history that when you've had people hear a message from you about money that we as human beings haven't changed. Part of us wants to turn it off. Part of us wants to be skeptical. Part of us wants to be closed off or offended. Lord, I pray that that spirit wouldn't be part of where we are as a church, that we would understand that this message is a message that's to bring freedom. It's a message that is to reorient us to understand that all of the economy of this world is yours and you've given it to us to steward for your kingdom and your glory. For those that are here this morning that have heard a clear step from you that they need to take, Give them the courage to share that with me, with our leadership, with someone in the church that can walk with them so that they can experience that which is truly life and live a life that's generous toward you. We love you, Lord. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.